Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank, thank you so much, Rob. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is done in collaboration with Stupid Cancer. So it's Stupid Cancer and Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. And the title of today's program is Challenges Young Adults with Cancer Face. Coping Tips, and it's part one of Young Adult Cancer Survivorship um, programs that we'll be doing, so it will be a part two as well. And today's program is supported by CGEN, and I'd like to thank them for their support of this program. Now, I just would like to give you just a snapshot of like who's on the call today. So we have over 300 participants on today's workshop, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have a number of international participants from Algeria, Australia, Canada, Ghana, India, Peru, Poland, Singapore, South Africa, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is truly a global call, um, and we're delighted that all of you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Emily Tonarezos. Dr. Tonarezos is Director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, the National Cancer Institute, or NCI. And Dr. Tonarezos will be addressing the overview of young adults living with cancer, including delays in diagnosis, where to seek cancer treatment, selecting your oncology healthcare team, including young adult cancer programs, the importance of treatment summaries, and follow-up with your oncologist and primary care doctor, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and disclosure of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tonarezos. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And thank you, everyone, uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak today. It's really my pleasure. And I see um, great put pleasure of kicking off this teleconference um, with a little bit of an overview about young adults living with cancer. And we know that the most common cancer type among people ages 20 to 39 are testicular cancer, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, and cervical cancer. And of course, when we break it down between males and females, we see that young adult males are more likely to get testicular cancer, colorectal cancer, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and thyroid cancer, while young adult females are more likely to have breast cancer, thyroid cancer, melanoma, and cervical cancer. Now, this population of people who were diagnosed with cancer as young adults has gotten increasing attention more recently as we've realized a number of important things about young adults who have been diagnosed with cancer. And the first one is that it's important to connect young adults with cancer to, to a treatment team that specializes in that type of cancer. Because cancer in young adults is rare, it is important that the oncologist or the treatment team 
has knowledge and specialization in that cancer type. Research is finding that for some types of cancer, young adults may have better outcomes if they're treated on pediatric rather than adult treatment regimens. That does vary by the type of cancer, but it's, important, it's an important thing to think about. Young adults who have a cancer that typically occurs in children and adolescents, such as brain tumors, leukemia, and sarcomas, may be getting treated by a pediatric oncologist. These doctors are often affiliated with a hospital that's a member of the children's oncology group. That's one place to look for these facilities. However, young adults who have cancers that are more common in adults or older adults are often treated by a medical oncologist through hospitals that are affiliated with an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center or a clinical research network supported by the NCI, such as NCTN or NCORP, called NCOR. Actually, you can go to the NCI website and we have a um, specific website that's a website that's dedicated to finding healthcare services. It's pretty easy to find with Google, but if you're going, um, if you want to type in the address, it's www.cancer.gov/about-cancer/managing-care/services. You can also find it on Google. And a second opinion may be especially helpful when there are complicated medical decisions that need to be made, if there are different treatment options that you're trying to decide between, if you have a rare cancer, or if the first opinion that you get comes from a doctor who doesn't specialize in your type of cancer or seems to not treat many young adults with the type of cancer that you have. The type of treatment you get is based on the cancer that you have and how advanced your cancer is, which is sometimes called its stage or its grade. And there are other factors that your team should consider, like your age, your overall health, and your personal preference. So I'm someone who specializes in cancer survivorship, which has more to do with the side effects from treatment, the care coordination, and all of the things that happen to people who've been diagnosed with cancer. So I, my, me and my Dr. Malika, who's going to speak next, spend a lot of time thinking about um, how best to help people who've been diagnosed with cancer. One of the most common things we hear survivors say is that they're interested in fertility preservation. So it's important to talk to your team or your doctor about how your treatment may affect your fertility. You can learn about your fertility preservation options and possibly even see a fertility specialist before starting treatment, depending on the circumstances. And research has found that although discussions of fertility preservation between doctors and young adult cancer patients are becoming more common, we, we still have a ways to go there. There are some organizations that can help you figure out what you might need in terms of fertility-related support and advice to young adults and healthcare professionals. One of these is called the Onco Fertility Consortium, or you can come to the Office of Cancer Survivorship website. Another option is to call the Cancer Information Service, which is run by the National Cancer Institute. That phone number is 1-800, the number four, and the word cancer. And they can help you with this information or with finding clinical trials or finding out about other opportunities related to your cancer diagnosis. I also want to point out that cancer can create a real sense of isolation from friends and family. You know, especially as a young adult, you will not have a lot of peers who've been through a cancer diagnosis, and people may really not understand what you're going through. 
you may end up having to move back home with your parents or maybe press pause on your education or your job or your plans to start a family. And these types of challenges can be very difficult to deal with. There are lots of ways to get support, and I, I would encourage you, if not through the NCI, then to reach out to your care team um, and find out what they have to offer you. But there is a lot out there. There are a lot of people who are going through what you are going through and who are there and want to support you in that. Um, I had a few other things I just wanted to mention. As you are going through treatment, it is important to talk to your team about getting a treatment summary. This is detailed records about your diagnosis, meaning this includes things like what type of cancer did you have? What was the pathological name of the cancer you had? So sometimes you'll see something that says leukemia and then there's a more detailed description of exactly what kind of leukemia that is. You should also keep a record of what type of treatment you received. This means whether you got chemotherapy, their names, the doses, if you got radiation, the part in the body that got radiation therapy and the dose of the radiation therapy that you got. Certainly if you had something like a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant, you wanna know uh, the date that you had that transplant and if possible even who your donor was, that is very important. If you can't get that information from your um, care team, sometimes you can request the records directly from the place where you were treated. And then we also encourage people to get a survivorship care plan. So this is more of a plan that addresses both the physical and psychological follow-up care that you should receive after your cancer treatment. This plan is usually different for each person and depends on the type of cancer and the treatment you received. Unfortunately, studies have found that many young adult cancer survivors are often aware of or underestimate their risk for side effects from treatment. So you can please come to our website or um, reach out directly if you have any questions about what might be relevant to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Teresa. That was a wonderful presentation, and you really set the stage for today's program, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but just a stellar presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Michelle Malika, and Dr. Malika is Deputy Director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of, Can of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Malika will be addressing managing post-treatment side effects, late effects, talking with the healthcare team about survivorship questions and concerns, dealing with physical changes due to cancer or its treatment, and coping with concerns about cancer recurrence. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Malika. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesmer. Um, it's great to join this panel today, and I'm going to expand on some of the things that Dr. Tonarezos mentioned. I'll start by just talking a bit about how to manage post-treatment side effects or lead effects. Um, I'll start by saying that cancer and the treatment that you receive may cause many side effects, both during treatment and after. Some of those could be short-term, they could go away quickly, some might last longer, and some might occur years after your cancer and its treatment. Um, those symptoms might vary, but they could include things like sexual health issues, pain, fatigue, stomach problems like constipation or diarrhea. 
Your oncology team might discuss some of the symptoms that you could experience based on the type of cancer that you have and the treatments you have received, but you might experience symptoms that are new or you're not expecting, especially if you're treated with some of the newer therapies. So either way, it's really important to reach out to your healthcare provider to let them know what you're feeling and to see if you need to be seen. Um, Follow-up care after a cancer diagnosis can include many things, um, but identifying and managing side effects of cancer and its treatment is one of the important things uh, and components of follow-up care. Um, it's also important, as Dr. Tonarezos mentioned, to continue to see your primary care provider even during cancer treatment, so they're in the loop about what you're experiencing and the type of care that you had. Overall, it's very important to talk with your healthcare team about your questions and concerns. So if you don't have an appointment com coming up and you're experiencing a symptom, you can call the office to talk with a nurse or schedule an appointment. Before your appointment, I suggest arranging for a family member or a friend to attend the visit with you so that they can listen and, <laughs> excuse me, maybe even take notes. You can also make a list of your questions and concerns before the appointment. And to cope with some of the changes or the symptoms that you might be feeling after diagnosis, it's important to keep talking about how you're feeling. You can talk with a close family member or friend, someone on your healthcare team, or even a counselor or a psychologist. Keep in touch with people you might have met during your cancer treatment. Consider joining a support group. As Dr. Tonarezos mentioned, it can be hard to find people who have been through the same thing as you, and support groups might help you. Um, and it's important to do things that you enjoy. Another concern that you might be dealing with is physical changes um, during cancer and after your treatment is over, which might make you feel self-conscious about your body. It's really important to know that whether you're feeling more positive about things or sad or angry about physical changes, it's a normal part of adjusting to life after your cancer diagnosis. So it's important to acknowledge how you're feeling. You can also ask your doctor what to expect before treatment starts, and that can help you mentally prepare ahead of time if possible. You can ask other people that are going through your cancer how they adjusted to body changes. It's also really important to try to get enough sleep and to try to move your body with some exercise so that you can manage your stress. And overall, let your healthcare team know about any concerns or questions that you have. And finally, I was asked to just speak briefly on coping with concerns about it, your cancer coming back. So that's one of the most common concerns that cancer survivors have is that their cancer will recur um, or come back. And having a fear of recurrence is very normal. Um, the most important thing you can do is to have consistent follow-up care with your healthcare team so that your health is being closely monitored. And sometimes that can help reduce your fear of recurrence. If that fear persists, though, you, it's really important to talk with someone. A mental health professional can help you talk out loud about your concerns and manage them. You also should be aware that sometimes anxiety or being fearful can come up at specific times, like when you have follow-up imaging, like CAT scans or PET scans or other images. That's called scanxiety. 
So other times this year might increase around follow-up lab tests or doctor's visits, but it's really important to acknowledge how you're feeling, to talk with your family and friends and other cancer survivors to make you feel less alone. And I'll end just by saying that there's lots of ways to get information online. Dr. Tonarezos mentioned some, and I know that there will be other resources mentioned at the end of the, web, the teleconference today. But the National Cancer Institute's Cancer Information Service can also help you, um, and that's at cancer.gov. And I'll turn it back to you, Dr. Mesner. Thank you so much, Dr. Malika. That was an outstanding presentation, stellar presentation. And actually, um, all of the uh, information about phone numbers and websites we will be giving you, you'll be getting a survey monkey from us sometime next week. And in that survey monkey, it's an evaluation of the program itself, but we will also include, to start with, um, a lot of um, the, uh, anything that was mentioned, numbers or websites that were mentioned in today's program. And we may add some others as well, just because there are a lot of resources out there that um, you may not be as familiar with, and we'll be sure to include them as well. But certainly the National Cancer Institute is just a wonderful place to call just, um, or to visit their website, so um, just to be aware of that. And our next speaker is Julie Babayeva, and Julie, Ms. Babayeva is um, supervising attorney legal health Cancer Advocacy Project, New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAG. And Ms. Babayeva will be addressing financial concerns, including health insurance, coverage, school, college, and career, knowing your rights, like Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, and additional legal protections. Choosing who and what to tell others in terms of disclosure is another important topics she'll be addressing, and working during cancer treatment, suggestions from the healthcare team. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ms. Babieva. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'm very pleased to be a part of this workshop with Cancer Care. I will first be speaking about health insurance. To understand your health coverage, it's important to know that there are different types of insurance plans. For example, there are private insurances, which include group plans from employment and unions. There are policies available through the Affordable Care Act at the state marketplace. And of course, there's things like Medicare and Medicaid. The type of plan you have is going to determine the type of laws and rules that apply regarding coverage, eligibility, and appeals. The insurance laws of your state may also require certain minimum benefits, so your rights will vary depending on where you live. As a start, the most important advice I can give is to read a copy of your policy. Is your policy an HMO, which allows only in-network doctors, or a PPO or POS, which allows for out-of-network doctors, but often under reduced reimbursement rate? With an HMO, you usually have a copayment and sometimes a deductible, but no other financial burden if your doctor is in-network. With other policies, your out-of-network doctor can bill you directly for any amount not paid by your insurance. Understanding the policy can help you make informed decisions about your medical care and avoid surprise bills. Because of the Affordable Care Act's increased protections, insurers must sell and renew insurance regardless of health status, and most insurers can no longer refuse coverage for pre-existing conditions like cancer. Insurance companies can't limit the dollar amount they will pay for medical costs over the year or your lifetime. Additionally, Health Insurance Marketplace operates in every state where you can compare different plan benefits, see if you're entitled to lower your costs through subsidies, 
and determine if you're eligible for free coverage under Medicaid. You can access this information at the federal site healthcare.gov. There you can compare policies and costs and find answers to many questions. Essential health benefits are covered, including outpatient and emergency services, prescriptions, hospitalizations, mental health, preventative care, and more. It's important to remember that even with ACA expansions, all policies can still restrict coverage by limiting the number of physical therapy visits, home nursing, or mental health visits allowed per year. Major medical procedures may require preauthorization, so it's important to check with your doctor's office to confirm. Health insurance is essentially a contract. You and your employer agree to pay a set premium, participate in cost sharing, and follow the guidelines. In return, your health insurer agrees to cover certain services in your policy. This is called the Certificate of Coverage. Your insurance company or employer must provide you with a copy if you ask for it. The most important advice I can give is that although it can be daunting, you should read a copy of your Summary of Benefits, which breaks down your cost-sharing and basics of your policy, as well as the Certificate of Coverage, which outlines your benefits, coverage limits or exclusions, prior authorization requirements, as well as the appeals process. Now, more on Medicaid. Eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and vary depending on where you live. Medicaid is free, and to be eligible, you must fall below income and asset limits set forth by Medicaid laws. Medicaid plans with higher income limits are also offered in many states for patients with certain types of cancer or for working people with disabilities. As I mentioned earlier, one application on the marketplace can determine your eligibility for Medicaid or another health plan, as well as any subsidies or premiums. Next, I'm going to give an overview of the laws protecting against discrimination based on disability in school, work, and during medical leave. I'll also talk about what to do if you believe you're being discriminated against at work. My focus will be on federal laws that apply in all 50 states, but I urge you to become familiar with your state's laws, as they often provide even greater protections than the federal laws do. If you're still in school, you will be protected by Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which forbids organizations that receive federal funding from excluding or denying individuals with disabilities an equal opportunity to receive program benefits and services. This law applies to primary, secondary schools, and colleges. Colleges have individualized policies for medical leaves of absence, so it's hard to discuss them generally here. But these policies outline the steps you need to take to maintain or reinstate your financial aid upon your return should you need to take leave. Typically, federal student aid, such as Pell Grants and direct loans, are affected by enrollment status. So if you take a leave of absence, especially if it extends beyond a certain period, your enrollment status may change. If you drop below half-time enrollment, it could affect your eligibility for certain types of federal aid. Colleges and universities typically have disability services offices that work with students to determine appropriate accommodations based on their individual needs. Therefore, it's crucial to communicate with your college's financial aid and disability services offices as soon as you anticipate the need for leave of absence or an accommodation. They can provide guidance on the specific impact of your financial aid and help you understand any procedures or paperwork required. If you're working, I want to urge everyone to make sure to review the specific policies of your employer for medical leave and disability pay. Every employer should provide a summary of company policies and benefits. These policies may even offer greater protection than the laws I will be discussing. I'm going to begin with a law I'm sure most of you have heard of, the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. This is a federal law 
that applies to everyone who works for an employer with 15 or more employees. To be eligible for protection under the ADA, you must have a disability which is defined as having an impairment that substantially limits a major life activity, such as walking, working, eating, or sleeping. The ADA has two main benefits. The first benefit is that it requires an employer to make a reasonable accommodation when it is requested by an employee. This empowers employees to request changes in their work schedule, work environment, or company policy. Reasonableness is case specific, but employers must comply unless it possesses an, ex an exceptionally challenging burden, which is hard for them to prove. And additional costs don't always qualify as undue hardship. I always suggest that the accommodation request be made in writing with a letter of support from your doctor, certifying that the accommodation is medically necessary, but also stating that you can continue to be able to perform your essential job tasks. The second ADA benefit is that the law prohibits discrimination against an employee because of disability or perceived disability. If a person is able to do their job and has an accommodation in place or needs time off, an employer cannot take action that adversely affects their job just termination or demotion. The next law I want to discuss is the Family Medical Leave Act, often known as the FMLA. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months and for 1,250 hours within the last year. If an employee qualifies, they're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months, and this can be taken intermittently. FMLA leave is unpaid, but it can be combined with sick time or short-term disability. FMLA time off can be requested to care for yourself or a family member, such as a spouse or a child. Also, if you work for a smaller company and do not qualify for FMLA, time off for treatment can be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA, as we discussed earlier. Lastly, I want to address disclosure. Under the ADA and FMLA, um, and as it relates to discrimination. Deciding to disclose is a personal decision and you have control over who should be aware of your health situation and when. Under the ADA, disclosure occurs in three different phases. The first is pre-employment. Employers can't ask health questions during job applications, but can inquire about your ability to perform duties with or without an accommodation. No pre-employment medical exams are allowed. Once you have a job offer, employers can condition offers on passing a medical exam, but this has to apply uniformly to all entering employees and you can't be singled out. Truthfulness in responses is essential and job offers cannot be revoked based on disability unless false information was provided. And, and thirdly, once while you're employed, employers can't mandate medical exams or disability-related questions unless job-related and necessary for business with exceptions for certain safety-sensitive roles, such as firemen. In summary, disclose only when necessary for ADA accommodations or FMLA leave. Despite legal safeguards, discrimination persists due to misunderstandings. HR is the first step, and if issues persist, filing employment opportunity commission complaint is an option. You should check state laws for additional protections and consult an attorney for more guidance. Practically, Understanding your benefits, reviewing the summary of benefits, and knowing the medical leave policy is very important. You must address discrimination proactively, consider any ADA accommodations, and carefully decide on who you would like to disclose information to. I know this is a lot of information, and I encourage listeners to take the time to educate themselves about federal laws and regulations, as well as their own state's laws, 
and seek out resources such as cancer care to have a better understanding of your rights and the protections available to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that was a wonderful presentation, um, Ms. Pabayeva. Just an amazingly full of a lot of information, it's true. Um, and you know, I should let everyone know that um, this program will also be available in a couple of days as a podcast with closed captioning so that you'll be able to actually listen to the program and hear it. It'll be up for at least a year um, on our website. Um, so just to, to know that. But um, yeah, thank you. That was really a lot of, lot of wonderful information for people to have. And um, it's it certainly, particularly as a young adult, um, sometimes young adults may not be familiar with these laws and, and regulations, and it can really help tremendously. And our next speaker is Matthew Murray-Keen. And Matthew is Program and Community Coordinator, Stupid Cancer. And he is, this is um, a, a partner organization on today's program. Many of you may be familiar with Stupid Cancer. Uh, Matthew is going to discuss um, the Stupid Cancer free programs and services and provide you with um, how to access information or, or, or how to access a Stupid Cancer's um, website and call them. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Mr. Murray King. Hello. Okay, my name is Matthew Murray King, and as you just said, I'm the program community coordinator here at Stupid Cancer. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about us and our mission. Stupid Cancer helps to empower everyone affected by AYA cancer, which for us is ages 15 to 39, by ending isolation and building community. We aim to have all AYAs feel supported, understood, and accepted. We do this through a number of our programs. Our headlining programs are CancerCon Live and Digital CancerCon, which are held once a year where AYAs can get together and connect during breakout sessions on a variety of cancer topics, like sex and intimacy, mental health, insurance paperwork, all the stuff you heard here today even, um, to having, you know, fun there too and making new friends at karaoke or even our dance party. CancerCon Live is going to be held this year in Austin, Texas at, um, in August on the 15th to the 18th, and Digital CancerCon will be held virtually in April, the 18th to the 20th. We also hold discussion series. So discussion sessions online is a yearly program that we have. We have them pretty much every month, but we have a licensed social worker on staff host a presentation on important topics to AYAs, and hold an open and honest discussion post-presentation. Stupid Cancer Stories are another way you can get involved to share your cancer story. Whether you're a writer or wish to record it, you can share your story via our story library. Finally, we have meetups. That whole get out and get social type of deal, this is where you can do it. We host a variety of digital and live meetups every month to make friends with others who get it. <laughs> Our next digital meetup is actually this Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I hope to see some of y'all there. You can find all these programs and more at stupidcancer.org. While you're there, feel free to join our newsletter for upcoming events. And make sure to follow us on socials. Instagram, we got Facebook, we got, we got it all. At Stupid Cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That was a wonderful presentation. And... Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matthew. Thanks. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Haley Fuchs. And 
Ms. Fuchs is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be talking about Cancer Care's free programs and services, our hope line and website. And I'm going to turn this now program over to Ms. my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fuchs. Thank you, Dr. Messner. My name is Haley Fuchs. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and I'd like to take this opportunity to address the psychosocial impact that a cancer diagnosis can have on the young adult population and highlight some of Cancer Care's programs. Before I get started, I want to provide a brief review of Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to people to manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. I'm going to provide a brief overview of our services. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming, and additional support and guidance may help to relieve feelings of anxiety. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. Cancer Care offers free, cancer-focused counseling to individuals impacted by cancer for those who live in New York and New Jersey. Joining a support group can be a way of getting additional support throughout this time. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Cancer Care offers support groups for young adults across the country. These groups take place using a password-protected message board platform and are led by professional oncology social workers. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time and you can register on our website. We are currently offering a few groups specifically for the young adult population, uh, some groups for young adults diagnosed with cancer as well as young adult caregivers, and we'll be launching the LGBTQ plus online support group in February. Young adults diagnosed with cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment. It may be helpful to discuss any financial concerns with your medical provider, social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center that you uh, receive treatment at um, in order to see if there are any financial options available to you. Cancer Care also offers some limited financial assistance to young adults as well. Cancer Care provides free telephone resource navigation to young adults living with cancer, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers. These services are provided by professional resource navigators and oncology social workers and are available in English and Spanish. Resource navigation centers on the practical challenges that arise from cancer, and staff provide clients with resources, referrals, and potential financial assistance options. Dr. Tanner... Tonorenos uh, touched on clinical trials in her presentation. Cancer Care is now offering an online tool called MyTrialist that provides information on clinical trials. Finally, on Cancer Care's website, there is a wide array of reading material and information related to young adults coping with cancer. This includes Connect Education Workshops, Cancer Care Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast, and multiple publications, as well as stories of help and hope in both general and specific resources. We also have Coping Circle Workshops. Additionally, we'll have upcoming Winter Wellness uh, Yoga in January and the Young Adult Cancer Chronicles. If you're interested in learning more about our support services through Cancer Care, I encourage you to explore our website and, of course, call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. Thank you for your attention, and I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Hughes. That was a wonderful presentation, and both um, Cancer Care and Stupid Cancer are wonderful resources for our um, participants in today's program. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to you how to ask a question. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. This would be for Dr. Um, 
Tularezos, how do I go about getting second opinions for a diagnosis? Thank you so much for the question. So um, I mentioned a few places that you can look for someone to offer a second opinion. Um, one is through the Children's Oncology Group. Another is through the National Clinical Trials Network. If you're not sure how to search those resources, you can call that 1-800-4-CANCER number or go to cancer.gov. Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. Malika, um, should I talk with a fertility expert before cancer treatment begins if I am interested in the effects of the disease or treatment on my ability to become pregnant or have children? That's a great question. It's always better to bring up any questions or concerns, especially related to things like fertility, um, as early as possible. So yes, bringing it up before you um, start treatment is a great idea. Excellent. Um, thank you. And uh, so um, this question is, I am, and this would be a question um, for a question uh, for Dr. Malika, I am feeling overwhelmed with school and work because I feel fatigued all the time. Yeah, it's normal to it's normal to have a lot of frustration with how tired you might feel. What's important though is really to talk with your healthcare team first to make sure there's nothing that they can do about it. And then we do have some resources, and I would suggest contacting cancer.gov for ways to deal with your fatigue. Um, but it may include prioritizing the things that you need to do in a day and maybe taking on a little bit less. It might need that, mean that you need to step back from a few things, though, which can be frustrating. But it's important to acknowledge it and to talk with your healthcare team. And this is a great question for Dr. Uh, for Ms. Babieva. Um, where can I find financial assistance resources for young adults to be specific 30-year-old male patients who have recently immigrated to the United States and have no U.S. citizenship yet? Thank you for the question. A lot of states offer a lot of different types of financial assistance. For example, in New York, um, emergency Medicaid covers a lot of treatment um, options for people with cancer, even if they don't have legal status um, in the United States or aren't United States citizens. It really is state-specific, so I would really suggest going um, on the website for your state. Um, you could look at Medicaid.gov um, and for any other public benefits such as cash assistance um, and things like SNAP, uh, you can look at SNAP.gov as well. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And um, for Dr. Malika, um, how do you suggest addressing the physical side effects of cancer for AYI, AYI, young adults with cancer? Um, for example, scar tissue from surgery can affect body image, and chemotherapy and radiation therapy can lead to related fatigue. That's a great question. Um, and you might experience those side effects or many, many others that, um, that we didn't talk about today. It's important to talk with your healthcare team first to see if there's anything that they can do about your symptoms or what you're feeling. It's also important to talk with other people who maybe have gone through your cancer or who are at your similar age and are cancer survivors so that you can um, 
feel less alone and feel maybe like someone else is experiencing what you've also experienced. Thank you so much. And for Ms. Hughes, my friends have been treating me differently since I have been diagnosed with cancer. How can I talk to them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, informing them of, you know, as much as you feel comfortable with, you know, in terms of your treatment and, you know, finding, you know, who who is the best person to talk to about, you know, X, Y, or Z and really creating that support network for yourself. Um, and I think, again, you know, reaching out to, to you know, organizations like us at Cancer Care, if you're interested in being in, a, in an online support group, that could be another, you know, great option to connect with others who, who may be going through, you know, similar experiences. And um, um, Mr. Morikin, do you want to also comment on this as well in terms of um, stupid cancer resources? Yeah, so I would go uh, same same kind of concept. Yeah, definitely like talking to your friends and honestly being blunt about it. Just saying, hey, this is who I am. This is how I am going to be. Making things out in the open and how you're feeling is going to be the best way to really like break down those barriers between you and your current friend group. But then it's also very nice to having other people who get it, you know, joining us with our digital meetups or even our live meetups um, that we're having here in 2024 in New York City and some other places as well, or, you know, digitally uh, going into these support groups or going into these just friend groups. We have game nights and things like that where you can just connect, have fun, but also be with people who understand the fatigue, the what's happening, you know? Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so this is an interesting question. Um, other, um, and this one would be for, um, I think this Hughes. Are there any organizations that may help financial fertility treatments? Yeah, so actually, if you call Cancer Care, call our Hopeline, um, which I can provide the number again. I know Dr. Messner will. Um, if you give us a call, we can provide a whole list of resources um, for fertility treatment and financial assistance. And, you know, depending on your diagnosis um, and, and where you live in the, in the United States, we may be able to, you know, offer some limited financial assistance that could maybe offset some of the costs of that treatment. Um, but definitely, you can give our Hopeline a call and we can see how we can best support. And we also have a question about finding information in Spanish as well. Can you help with that as well? Yeah, of course. So if you call our Hopeline, um, again, we can transfer you to an oncology social worker who can speak uh, to you in Spanish. They can also offer um, resource navigation in Spanish. Um, so our Hopeline number, again, 800-813-4673. And when you call that number, you can click on the option that asks for um, asks that uh, you can speak with a Spanish-speaking oncology social worker, and they can definitely assist. Thank you so much. And for Dr. Um, Tenerezos, do all cancer centers have an AYA program branch? That's a great question. Actually, I don't think that we have any tally of the cancer centers that have an AYA branch or a group that specifically focuses on AYA cancers. That said, every NCI-designated cancer center has the ability and the capacity to treat people who've been diagnosed as, as young adults. Those are the best centers then for um, the young, the AYA population to um, reach out to. And there is a, you can get a listing of those centers, is that correct, by calling the 800 number or visiting the website, is that correct, um, 
Yes. That's the reason. Yes. That's See, right. then you can find the center close to you. And again, we'll be sending you all that information, the, the website, the telephone number to call. Um, the telephone number, by the way, to call, um, it, um, it's 1-800, the number one cancer. And actually, um, they're actually on the West Coast. So if you're on the East Coast, it's really nice because you have a couple of extra hours to reach people. And they're Monday through Friday, I believe. Um, and so it's it's a it's a great resource for you to reach out to. Um, so this is an interesting question for Dr. Malika. Are there quest, are there late effects I should look out for when I am older? That's a very good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, there's lots of late effects that may occur um, years after you complete your treatment. It does depend um, it, and varies widely based on the type of cancer that you have and the type of treatments that you've received. For example, sometimes you may have impacts on your heart, so cardiac issues. Um, are a late effect that occurs years after treatment, but it really depends. So it's important to talk with your doctor who knows your treatment history and your cancer history and can give you an idea of what things you need to look for and how you need to be followed up long term. Excellent. Um, and um, another question. Um, for Dr. Um, Tenerezos, I would like to have children in the future. Will my treatment options change based on that? Thanks for your question. That really is something that you should talk over with your um, cancer provider, your cancer care providers. I can speak in broad terms. You know, typically that would not be the way that decisions are made, and so um, it, broadly speaking, that wouldn't be a usual route for decision-making, but it's really something to talk to your team about. Excellent. Thank you. And this is a general question for Dr. Malika. Um, who is part of my healthcare team? Wow, that's a great question. So, um, so everybody's healthcare team looks a little bit different. Usually your oncology provider, so the person that has helped lead your treatment, um, is often the main person, at least while you're going through treatment. Um, also part of your healthcare team might be, um, during treatment, might be a radiation um, oncologist or a radiation team, a surgical team. You may have um, medical oncologists. But you also have a host of other healthcare providers that may be part of your team, including nurses and nurse practitioners, social workers, um, rehabilitation specialists. There's, um, there's a lot of providers that might be part of your team, but I'll also add the primary care providers and any community providers. So your team can be broad, um, and you should um, have a lot of support. And if you're not getting the support that you need, I would ask um, the questions and tell people what you're experiencing so that you can get help. Excellent. Thank you. And I just want to say that I actually the number I gave out was a, a, a digit wrong there. So it's 1-800, the number four cancer. So it's 1-800, the number four cancer. Um, so that's um, okay. Um, 
So this is a question for, we'll start with Ms. Fuchs. I know my family care a lot about me and wants to help me, but at times it feels, it feels like it's too much. Um, I want some independence. Do you want to comment on that, Ms. Fuchs? Sure, yeah, thank you. That's, that's definitely a comment that we hear often. I think it's really important to set boundaries with family and friends. You know, maybe some days you feel more comfortable talking about your diagnosis than other days, and that's okay. Um, it's important to just make sure that, again, you set that boundary of, you know, if, if you're about to go for an appointment or a scan and you're feeling like it's just too much to talk and think about, you know, you can ask your family and friends for support in just, you know, distracting you or doing, doing something that really, really helps support you because this is, this is your journey and your experience. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, Matthew, do you want to comment on this as well? Can you repeat the question again? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, I know my family care a lot about me and wants to help me, but at times it feels like it is too much. I want some independence. I agree fully then <laughs> with what was just said. Yeah, definitely just keeping the conversation open and letting your family know what you need and what you need from them and what you want to be able to give them and keeping that that line open that, you know, some days you're going to want to say more, other days you're not. And keeping it exposed because they're going to want what's best for you, but you got to let them know what's also best for yourself as well. You're your best advocate. And I think actually being um, a part of the different programs that both Cancer Care offers and Stupid Cancer offers gives you a, another group to connect with that are, are share, have the same issues that you do uh, or could have similar issues, may not have the exact same issues but become another peer group for you um, to relate to. Because as a young adult, um, unlike, let's say, an older adult who may know many people who have cancer, a younger adult, it's not that common um, to have cancer. And so that one's friends and family often don't quite understand um, the details. So it's, it's really helpful to have, you know, um, an, a group that you can relate to who are your age and are going through the same thing you are. They may be in different parts of the country, even different parts of the world, but they're still there for you. Um, so that um, it's really helpful. So this is an interesting question again um, uh, for um, Dr. Malika. What are some tips for maintaining a social life while being on treatment? That's a great question. Um, my um, colleague from Stupid Cancer might also have thoughts. I mean, I think, I think that you want to be as honest as you feel comfortable with your friends um, so that they know what your limitations are. I also think you need to choose the um, things that both bring you joy and that you think that you might have the energy for amidst how you're feeling. Um, and so I think really being honest and transparent about what you're able to do and what you want to do, um, both with yourself and with your friends, is the best way to, um, to try to keep some social life. Excellent. And um, Matthew and um, Haley, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I can comment on this one. So yeah, definitely if you already have that friend group that's kind of established, Letting them know, like, this is what I'm able to do. I might, be have to, I might have to switch up on a dime because of this X, Y, and Z. Let them know, be open, and they should be able to work with that. Uh, 
really going based off of the energy is a big thing because sometimes you're just going to feel more tired than other days. It, it happens. But I think going beyond that, finding other friends, especially if you have an AYA center you're seeing or, or already in, finding those friends who are also in treatment. They tend to have around the same energy and understand what's going on. And let's say going to these kind of programs that Super Cancer has, that way you can, you know, like I said, we have like game nights, painting nights, just meetup nights, where you can meet up with people who are going through the same thing or at least will understand that you might not always be um, to be able to be present for it because X, Y, and Z um, definitely is the way to go. Thank you. Excellent. And um, Haley, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, exactly piggybacking off of what Matthew said, I think it's important to also remember that, you know, because you might be feeling a little more fatigued, your socialization might look a little different while you're going through treatment. Um, and, you know, like, like he mentioned, um, going to virtual events, you know, through stupid cancer or through cancer care, um, being a part of the virtual group. Give yourself that time and space um, to really, you know, keep keep resting and keep keep um, keep yourself healthy. Uh, excellent, thank you so much. Um, and um, uh, and I do want to remind everyone that we do have a part two to this program. And part two will be taking place on February 9th. It's young adult survivorship, fertility, sexuality, and intimacy. And so that um, on many of the, some of the questions that you, we touched on today will be much more um, handled in depth. And I would like to ask our speakers to um, provide takeaways. So I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Tonarezos, then Dr. Malika, then Ms. Babayeva, then um, uh, Matthew Menachin, um, and Haley Fuchs. Okay. So, Emily, just a quick takeaway. Sure. I think my takeaway is to remember that young adult cancer is rare, but there are lots of resources and lots of people who are available to help you get through this experience and afterwards. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and Michelle? And I think my takeaway really is to be patient with yourself, that life might look a little different either um, right away or a little bit later, and you really just need to be patient. Excellent. Thank you. And Julie? Um, I think I would say uh, it's very important to advocate for yourself and know that there are a lot of legal protections um, and options for you and to make sure that you take advantage of everything that is available in order to make this experience um, and the transitions in life as easy as possible. Excellent. And Matthew? My takeaway is you're not alone. There's other people who are going through this or other people who have been through it and know how you feel or similar, you know, how you feel and can relate to you. And stupid cancer is an easy way to find those people. Excellent. Um, and, um, and Haley. Yeah, uh, I was just piggybacking, piggybacking off of all of them as well. Coping with the cancer diagnosis as a young adult can feel really overwhelming and isolating, and you may not know, you know, people in your, your direct kind of circle that is going through a similar experience, and we just want you to know you're not alone. We're, we're here to support you, um, and, you know, this is a, a really difficult journey to navigate, and you're not alone. 
I know there's a question that just kept, popped in. I'm just going to we'll take it quickly um, for Haley and uh, for uh, Matthew as well. Um, where can I find online support groups? And uh, there, if um, Matthew, do you want to go first, and then Haley? Of course, yeah. Online support groups. I mean, when it comes to us, we're more of the social aspect. But stupidcancer.org, you click that calendar button, and there you go. There's a whole list of calendar events that are coming up where you can join in both virtually or in person. And Haley, do you want to talk about the online support groups? And again, these yeah, are all free, so I just know that. Yeah, yeah. So um, with Cancer Care, so we have online support groups, um, which is kind of like a message platform where you can talk to other people moderated by an oncology social worker. And if you go to our website at cancercare.org, you can go to the um, young adult section, and then you can go to support groups, um, and you'll see online support groups, and there's a registration process. Um, and then you can pick if you're looking for um, a young adult patient, a young adult caregiver, or um, in February, we're going to have an LGBTQ plus online support group as well. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I also want to thank those who've asked such really great questions. I mean, your questions really, um, this is a great group of participants, and your questions really help to enhance our program enormously because it gives the speakers a chance to address additional questions um, in more detail um, that were during their presentations. So I want to thank you all. However, I do want to acknowledge that we were not able to take everyone's questions. So, and there may be people who are in queue for a question, people who asked a question or have a question that they're thinking they'd like to ask. So I'd like all of you um, to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the same questions you asked here. Remember, your healthcare team consists not only of your oncologist, but also consists of um, probably a uh, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, a patient navigator, financial navigator, um, a huge team of people, dietitian, um, a huge team of people. And you actually, um, if you bring up your question with, let's say, your, if you have an appointment with an oncologist and they have a question about something, they can connect you with someone on their team who, could you, who you could also speak to. Physical therapist, there's a whole group of people who are part of your healthcare team that you may not have ever met with them, but they can be very helpful to you. So, um, so take your question, go back to your healthcare team with it, and keep asking your questions over and over again. I think what you probably learned today is that, um, is that you know, uh, our, you know our, um, our speakers were very eager to answer your questions, and the same is true for, our, um, for your own physicians as well and your healthcare te your whole healthcare team. Um, I again I want to and I know we're approaching we are in the midst of or approaching a holiday season, different holidays going through a period of time. And so um, do definitely take advantage of the support programs offered by Stupid Cancer and Cancer Care. Um, you'll be getting again in a couple of days um, a Survey Monkey link and that will include it's an evaluation of the program, but it also include all the phone numbers, websites, and then additional things that we may not have mentioned during the program that will be available to you as well. So just um, stay tuned, and, uh, and, and hopefully you'll sign up for our February 9th program, um, uh, the second part of this series. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.